0: Welcome to Men's Health Monthly with Dr. Tom Walsh, Director of the University of Washington's Men's Health Center and Associate Professor of Urology at the UW, featuring important topics dealing with men's health, including prostate cancer and erectile dysfunction. Here's your host, Neil Scott.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Men's Health Monthly, featuring Dr. Tom Walsh here on Sports Radio 950 KJR and KZOK. It's a look at many of the important issues that affect men specifically, including prostate cancer, as well as sexual and reproductive care, including a wide range of conditions. Dr. Walsh will join me every month as a resident expert. He's an associate professor at the University of Washington and is the director of the UW Men's Health Clinic. And we want this program to be not only for you, but to include you. Giving you an opportunity to ask Dr. Walsh questions about health issues. And you can do that in a couple of different ways. You can call and leave questions on Dr. Walsh's voicemail, which is 206-598-0937. Or you can email questions to Men's Health Monthly at iHeartMedia.com. That's men's health monthly at iHeartMedia.com, or the phone number is Area Code 206. 206- 598-0937. In this month's edition, we will start with the top questions from our listeners for Dr. Walsh. Then we'll meet Locke Anderson, a man who is a prostate cancer survivor, along with his wife, Alan Perkins, who will share her perspective on the journey through prostate cancer. They have a lot to say, and you have a lot to hear. Stay with us as we begin a series of programs about prostate cancer what it is, how it's identified, and what are the treatments that will afford the best possible outcome for survivorship. We will also provide some immediate online resources so that you can become better educated on men's health issues. And let's start by taking some questions from the anonymous inbox. The first comes from Charles. He says, a friend of mine in Spokane recently had a colonoscopy and they perforated his colon causing him to nearly die. How common is that? I heard it was one in 100, which sounds pretty scary.
2: Oh, boy. Um, Well, let me start by saying that the arena of gastroenterology, Mm -hmm. which is what Charles is referring to, is outside my board certification. So I want to be honest that that is not something I do, nor something I am privy to. But I will, will say a couple of really important things, which is that, number one, I think the statistics that he has found out are not true. And, in fact, there are very few screening tests that aging men, and women for that matter, are recommended to abide by, because they are so important, because they detect treatable disease. So that's what a screening test is. Mm-hmm. It's a test that has that detects something, a disease that otherwise has no symptoms, there's no signs of it, and colonoscopy is one of them. So colon cancer screening is one of those key things. So I don't think that that idea of a perforation occurring at 1 in 100, I don't believe that's true. It doesn't Um, sound right. I think that number is really inflated, and maybe there's some urban myth there, because the number of colonoscopies that are occurring day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year, is what my kids would say ginormous. So, um, and I would have to defer Charles back to his primary Mm -hmm. care provider Mm -hmm. and to his internist, but I would tell him, please, when he reaches that age where colonoscopy is recommended, please don't not do it.
1: Uh, Here's one from Michael, and he says, could you please tell me what acoustic wave therapy is? and how it works on erectile dysfunction. It claims no pills, no needles, yeah. no surgery. I saw it in the Seattle Times. Yeah.
2: sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It, it
1: really does. <laughs> it sounds
2: too good to be true. As one might suspect, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a scenario here. But the, the premise behind acoustic wave therapy is the idea that you could provide almost a, a, a low-level trauma to the male phallus to cause a regenerative effort. The idea that you could apply sort of a disruptive therapy and that would induce potentially stem cells in the penis to begin working better to allow it to operate better. And this has been picked up um, and licensed and is used by some, some various clinics. This year at our national meeting, of the Sexual Medicine Society of North America and the American Urological Association. These are the, the major governing societies of physicians and other healthcare providers that care for men with these diseases. It, it was somewhat emphatically stated that these therapies probably are not really ready for mainstream. Do they harm individuals? No, probably not. Do they harm their wallet? Probably. Probably. (laughs) Uh, Because these are not vetted therapies. They are not paid for by insurance. They are not paid for by Medicare. And it's because the data is really lacking to support their use. But if you've got extra money to spare and you're willing to just give something a try, I say, you know, okay. Mm. Uh, But I think that if you're looking for something more definitive, you probably need to seek elsewhere.
1: Uh, a couple of questions on prostate cancer, and we're going to be talking a lot about that in this program. Uh, how deadly is prostate cancer? I heard it's very slow-growing, and also, can you still have sex after your prostate is removed? That's from William A. <laughs> oh,
2: my goodness. I can't wait. We are So these are great questions, and I hope we can dig in yeah. deeper and maybe in a more nuanced way as our conversation continues today. To the question number one, how deadly is it? I'm happy to report that the five-year survival for men with newly diagnosed prostate cancer is 99%, making it one of the most survivable cancers ever.
1: If caught early.
2: If detected early and if monitored Mm -hmm. and treated if needed. So in spite of there being a predicted 175,000 new cases of prostate cancer in the U.S. this year alone, it will be highly unlikely that those men are going to, to die of their disease. Question number two, can you have sex after you've had your prostate removed? Absolutely. Can you use acoustic wave therapy to have <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. But if there's a will, there's a way. And so I would hope that every man who has the will could absolutely have intimacy after prostate cancer treatment of any kind.
1: All right. Good question, William. Thank you. Tyler wants to know, what is the recovery time following
2: prostate biopsy and how painful is it? Oh boy. Good question. So let's go back to the olden days. So in the olden days, this is, you know, 20 or more years ago, prostate biopsy was done in the office without any anesthetic at all. And I think I think it was uncomfortable. In the modern era and we'll ha- we have an expert in our midst yeah, yeah. that we should get to this later. Yeah. Local anesthetics that are expertly placed, prostate biopsy is very comfortable. I mean, I don't think men will line up to do it on the weekends, but <laughs> it's really very tolerable most of my patients tell me. The recovery is pretty brisk. I think the downtime maybe is a couple of days. You could have it on a Friday and be Back to work on Monday? Absolutely. Okay. And that's what I think we'd expect for most men. So if somebody is recommending a biopsy for you, please don't shy away from it.
1: And the pain is not as serious
2: as the mythology. That's not as serious mm-hmm. as the mythology.
1: If you are just joining us, I'm Neil Scott. You're listening to Men's Health Monthly with Dr. Tom Walsh. Men's Health Monthly is on the air on Sports Radio 950 KJR, the last Tuesday of every month at 8 o'clock, and on KZOK the last Sunday of every month at 6.30 a.m. And to reach Dr. Walsh with any questions, you can do that by sending him an email to menshealthmonthly at iheartmedia.com, or you can check in with him by voicemail at 206-598-0957. We're going to take a short time out, and when we come back on the other side, we are going to meet Locke Anderson and his wife, Alan Perkins. Locke Anderson is a prostate cancer survivor, and he's got a lot to share. We'll do that when we come back on Men's Health Monthly. Did you know that diabetes, heart disease, and prostate cancer procedures can contribute to erectile dysfunction? Many men aren't aware of this or of all the treatment options that a board certified urologist can offer. Understand your options and learn where you can find an ED specialist in Seattle to help. Visit edcure.org to get the facts and find a urologist who can offer treatment options that work when pills and injections don't. Again, that's edcure.org. Joining us in the studio is Locke Anderson and his wife, Alan Perkins. Locke has a very interesting and a very important story to tell about prostate cancer. First of all, Locke, welcome to Men's Health Monthly. And and if you would begin by just going back to the first time you heard the term prostate cancer.
0: Uh, Let's see, that goes back quite a ways. My dad, um, when he was a little bit older than I was, was diagnosed with prostate cancer and had a radical prostatectomy. And... Uh, caught it early enough and was fortunate enough to be cured and he's still still alive today, 90 years old and, and still runs three times a week on two, two new knees. I love it How old were you at the time? I was 58 mm. I was diagnosed with my prostate cancer.
1: You went for a routine screening
0: started with a um, annual physical and had a PSA test and it came back uh, quite elevated and went from there to uh, having a biopsy, which in follow-up to your question earlier, a biopsy is less painful than getting a flu shot. It's just not a big deal. So went from um, getting the biopsy to getting the results that weren't very favorable and quickly networked into some friends that had gone through this journey and networked into one of the Leading surgeons in the area had surgery, and then uh, we. Was was
1: your prostate enlarged as well?
0: No, the um, from a digital exam, it felt fairly normal and normal size, and had no,
1: no.
3: um, You never had symptoms.
1: No
0: symptoms. No symptoms at all. So everything was great.
1: But obviously, there was concern on the part of your GP because there was prostate cancer in your family. Sure. We'll give him that much credit. <laughs> Whoa. Well, can I, sure, can I point jump out in. that um,
2: <laughs> this is an important point because how urologists like me recommend when to begin screening is very much based on whether or not somebody has a family history. Mm-hmm. And we know that if you have a, one first degree relative, in Locke's case, a father who had prostate cancer, you are two times more likely than average to be diagnosed with prostate cancer. And if you have two first-degree relatives with prostate cancer, you are four times more likely. And this speaks to that there's some heritability Mm -hmm. to prostate cancer.
3: And also a family member with breast cancer. You have an increased risk. And
2: we now come to understand that through genetics, there may be some risk related to a family history of breast cancer, too. So there is still an awful lot of research
1: going on in prostate cancer
2: oh my gosh, so much. Mm. But there needs to be more. So
1: you get the diagnosis. You remember back to your dad going through it. How is Locke feeling at that point?
0: You know, we're optimistic and just figure you get the best surgeon and you go in and cut it out and get the best results and end up like my dad with you know, being cured. Well, we got their pathology back after the fact and it was spread through many lymph nodes and um, so they weren't able to get it all. So you go
2: to secondary treatment and deal with it. Lock, what- can I take you back a step? Knowing that there are multiple different types of therapy for prostate cancer, how, how did you decide what was right for you? You know, not to
0: get in the technical part of it, but being that it was high-grade, high high-risk cancer, yeah. the chances of it having spread were pretty great. The only way to really know the degree of spread was via surgery instead of going through the different forms of radiation. So the best chance for a cure, not a very good mathematical <laughs> a, a result was uh, was the surgery and kind of see what was all there and
1: how, how it was going to go. What yeah. were the other options?
0: Um, you know, there's uh, radiation typically, and now they're combining radiation and, and um, androgen deprivation therapy and some other d- drugs out there.
1: If you're just joining us, Locke Anderson is in the studio. He is a prostate cancer survivor. Uh, his wife, Alan Perkins, is here as well. Alan, tell me about what it meant to you when you heard that Locke was diagnosed with prostate
3: cancer. Just gut wrenching fear. Mm. Uh, there's no other way to describe it. I, was, I remember when he got the results of the biopsy. We happened to be we have a small place in Eastern Washington, and just sitting on the basically sitting on the steps as he's getting his results. What do we do next? And you know, the first impulse is just get out, get it, you know, get it out of me, that sort of thing. And and uh, so I think that's where surgery tends to be the the one option that people think of it because then you can remove it. We felt really isolated too.
1: Did you have a support group at all?
3: Yes, got a really strong relationship with my sisters and some close friends, but you know the guys weren't talking about it. his father. Never, never brought up prostate cancer to lock after his surgery. He kind of, they men don't talk about this stuff.
1: Even after the surgery.
3: Even after the surgery, he didn't talk about it.
1: Is that pretty common, Doctor Walsh? Is it embarrassing to have had prostate cancer?
2: Certainly, it speaks to the this big difference between how men and women approach disease. I think this gets back to some of the things you and I have mm-hmm. mused about which is what are the phenomena whereby men simply don't share or get into trenches about what they're experiencing in their own health. We know that this is a problem. We know that men seek care less. We know they talk about their health less. This is somewhat sociological.
0: You're male, you're supposed to be bulletproof.
3: Right.
2: I th- right. I, I <laughs> Aren't you? <laughs> yeah. no. no. I've got yeah. holes in yeah. you. Yeah, yeah you. <laughs>
1: so uh, when you had the options, uh, did you decide together as man and wife what was going to happen, what you were going to do? How, did, how Take me through that process.
3: We approached this very, very rapidly. We did not do our research. And in hindsight, in hindsight, we would still elect to go for the surgery. But in hindsight also, we realized we could have taken a lot more time than we did. This, this cancer doesn't just take over immediately. You do have time, and you have time to make really good, educated choices and, and look at the side effects of, of radiation or look at the side effects of surgery and really make a, a good conscientious decision for your situation and what you're willing to put up with, basically. In our case, between diagnosis and surgery, was, was it even two weeks, Lock?
2: No, it wasn't. So it happened fast. Mm-hmm. So you know Locke and Alan, you you've mentioned on a couple of occasions that Locke received his biopsy results, and the math wasn't in his favor. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you came to understand? And I you know, and I want to use this to make a point about all prostate cancers not being made equal. So in in the in the, in the biopsy, they take twelve cores, and they.
0: Um, rate the severity of the cancer based off of what they call a Gleason score. And the older scale is they give you a Gleason score of six to 10. It's comprised of two numbers. A six is a three plus a three, which is the most dominant trait of the cancer, three being fairly low grade, up to a, a five. So a five plus five is a Gleason 10. And that's an, a, ver- a very aggressive cancer. And and mine was a gleason 9 which was combined of so a, really five near and the a top. 4. Yeah.
2: So, you know, just to add a little bit to that, when we talk about prostate cancer, what's really important about any cancer is what are those cancer cells doing? And sometimes we know a little bit more about what they are doing based upon what they look like. So this gleason score that Locke has referred to is an expert looking at the samples of Locke's prostate and saying, here's the score, this is how bad this is, and we know that it's the single most powerful predictor of how the cancer is going to behave. What happens is we've learned that there are really two broad categories. There's low-risk prostate cancer, which is a low Gleason score, cumulative score of something of seven or below, Mm -hmm. and then there are more aggressive prostate cancers that are eight or above, and they behave differently. And the good news is, is that a lot of cancers are slow actors and they could be observed and monitored. Considerable time could be taken before any action is taken.
1: But not ignored. That sounds but frightening. But not ignored. But not ignored. <laughs> That's That's but right. You don't want to sit and say, well, you know, the doctor said I don't have to deal with it right away. That's right. And away never comes. That's right.
0: And we've heard too many men say, well, I feel great, so I'm just going to ignore it. Right. And you shake your head kind of going, "That's mm-hmm. like speeding towards
1: a wall, not hitting the brakes. I talked earlier about enlarged prostate. Could a man have an enlarged prostate and not have a high score on the Gleason?
2: I want to make a separation between this notion of an enlarged prostate and prostate cancer. Okay. Because the truth is that they're simply not connected. As we as men age, from the time we go through puberty... Our prostates continue to grow, and that has all sorts of repercussions for men's. How they urinate can have repercussions for their fertility, so on and so forth. But those things are absolutely separate from prostate cancer. Why are they
1: linked together in the exam?
2: Well, because some prostate cancers can be detected by a lump or a nodule Mm. on the prostate. And I want to separate that from the overall size of the prostate. I also want to separate it from what kind of symptoms a man has when he's urinating. For anyone who's listening, symptoms that you, you know, whether you're peeing more often than you used to, you're getting up at night, those things are not, I repeat, are not a sign of prostate cancer. Prostate cancer is a symptom-free cancer. And so we have to find it through screening.
1: And that makes it all the more frightening without symptoms.
2: Frightening unless you simply Buckle up, take charge, and follow through with your screenings. Put on your big boy pants. You put on your big boy pants. Go to the doctor.
3: One of the things that first indication that Locke was having some issues is his PSA was rising. But his doctor didn't find it concerning. Locke didn't find it concerning.
2: Uh, he, so, he probably wasn't concerned because his doctor wasn't concerned. Right, right. And
3: and this is the this is the difference you were talking yeah. about a primary care doctor versus a urologist. As a urologist would have said, "Whoa, Nellie, we we should be looking at this."
0: You know, from conversations with my dad after his uh, his radical prostatectomy and his prostate cancer, it was okay. You know, you guys. You know, at age fifty, you should start doing your PSA screening. So started doing them and get the numbers back, and I'd look at them with my doc, and, okay, great, you know. You know, I look back on them now with a more educated eye, and and I care more now. <laughs> you can see from age 52, it was increasing every year at an alarming rate. And somebody should have raised a red flag and say, hey, we should probably, you know, do something a little bit further to see if this there's reason to be concerned. And that didn't happen until 58 years old and have a very high... PSA with ends up with bad results.
3: Well, and and actually, you this is this is also the need for screening. You went three years without uh, without going to the doctor, yeah. which is not unusual for men.
2: A yeah. this, <laughs> lock. this yeah. is new information, buddy. Bad, new information. bad man, yeah. this is new. It all comes out in the radio studio. Yeah, so,
3: yeah it comes out. So uh, he he had, I think, a PSA of four, and I didn't know anything about well, this, and then goes back in. It's now up to listen, 16. Listen, I think
2: there's, there's some things about your story that are really important to highlight. Number one, for an average man, from an average family where prostate cancer doesn't appear to be occurring in the family, the American Urologic Association recommends to begin screening at age 55. So from that standpoint you were not completely outside where an average man were, would be.
0: I'm not average, the problem you well, Yes, thank you. The problem was you were not an
2: average man. You had had, you know, your father had been diagnosed with prostate cancer, and that would have moved your screening a little bit earlier. But there's something else that you said that is really important, which is there was a trend. Your numbers weren't oscillating up and down. Your PSA wasn't going up and then down. It wasn't up and then trending down, your PSA year over year was increasing. And we know that that change in PSA over time is really important. There is no black and white. There is no perfect test I can throw at any man to say he's got prostate cancer other than doing the biopsy. Knowing that a PSA is trending in a direction, knowing a family history, those are really important things.
1: What advice do you have to men who are probably listening to this show right now and thinking, gee, I'm, you know, 55, 60, 65, maybe older. Uh, I really haven't had my prostate checked. Uh, I'm scared. I'm frightened. Well, shouldn't be
0: scared or frightened. And, you know, the, the thing that, talk with so many men that are proud that they haven't been to a doctor in 10 years, and you're kind of going, you know, that might be fine for you. But for those people that love you, your wife, your kids, that's not fair to them. You're you're putting your relationship with them at risk because you're being selfish, and that's just that's not right. For you know, if you're not going to do it for yourself, do it for your loved ones, and go to a doctor on a regular basis and get the proper screenings, whether it be a colonoscopy, get your PSA, and you know, be smart about going forward in life. Men on an average die seven years younger than women. It's because we're not proactive. Guys are great about changing the oil in their car every 3,000 to 5,000 miles. Well, you don't have to. You can drive it till, it, till the engine blows up, but that's not the smart thing to do. Well, not going to the doctor annually is about as brilliant as not changing your oil. You Neil, know? When's,
1: I'm looking at your face. Yeah. When's the last time you changed your oil, buddy? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's an excellent point. And, and so when men go and they take that, uh, uh, and and maybe they have a high, uh, a high score, uh, they wind up with prostate cancer. You had people all over the country calling you. What do you do now going forward to carry that message of hope, that promise of survivorship?
0: You know, we do our part to be very vocal about that, you know, hey, I didn't choose to have cancer. I've got it. We'll talk about it. Anybody that we know, knows that we have cancer. We're dealing with it. We're dealing with the side effects. We're mitigating them. We're having fun in life. We want men. We want women. We want everybody to talk about men being proactive about their health care. And for the men that do get uh, diagnosed with prostate cancer or just get their biopsy results back, Hey, we're a resource. Call us.
3: right? And We'll
0: spend an hour. I'll pull over on the side of the road. I don't text and drive. Do (laughs) it, (laughs) honey. Good to know. Uh, Yeah. I might speed, though.
3: (laughs) Actually, almost on a monthly basis, Locke is taking a phone call from someone and talking about prostate cancer and giving, um, you know, just saying maybe putting them in touch with other people. And they're usually strangers or friends of friends of friends. And the other thing we tell people, educate yourself. You have to be an advocate. You have to. So it means you educate, whether it means going to a support group and listening and, or reading or finding good resources. Well, that's
0: one of the things I wanted to say. You know, the support groups around here aren't just a bunch of guys lamenting where they are no. in life. This is a sharing of information on, on uh, new clinical trials that are available for guys that are still dealing with their cancer for getting exposure to how to mitigate the side effects and, um, you know, informal conversations about, you know, how you're doing and how other guys are doing and, you know, what can you learn from their journey so that you're not in darkness. Right. I,
2: I got to jump in here because I think uh, Locke and Ellen are being a little too humble about how involved they are in educating others. Um, they These are two people who have really... Uh, Figuratively and literally, put their money where their mouth is. Um, Locke and Allen serve as co-chairs of UW Medicine's Accelerate Men's Health Campaign, where we are, uh, where our mission is to do perform outreach to educate men in our in our city, in our region, and in nationally about prostate cancer and other significant men's health diseases, including prostate cancer survivorship. Um, and they're actively helping us uh, raise money so that we can do more research. And so anyone who's interested, I recommend uh, uh, learning more about what we do through the UW's Accelerate Campaign website. Where and, they can, and send money. And they can, <laughs> they can search out um, the Men's Health Research Fund, which actively supports uh, survivorship and prostate cancer research, um, but also the, the UW Men's Health Center website to help direct towards various therapies. Would that be
1: the first stop?
2: I think it's a great first stop. I don't think it's the only first stop, but it's a good place to go. Simply Google UW Men's Health Center. Other
1: great resources include sexhealthmatters.org, edcure.org, a great website, and urologyhealth.org. That wraps up this month's edition of Men's Health Monthly, featuring Dr. Tom Walsh, UW professor and the director of the University of Washington Men's Health Center. Next month, we're going to have in studio Dr. John Gore. He is a clinician, a surgeon, a researcher, and an educator at the University of Washington, specializing in urological oncology. Men's Health Monthly airs on the last Tuesday of every month at 8 p.m., on Sports Radio 950 KJR and on KZOK Seattle's classic rock station 6:30 a.m. on the last Sunday of every month. If you have questions about men's health, you can certainly leave a question on Dr. Walsh's voicemail at 206-598-0937 or in the anonymous inbox at Men's Health Monthly at iHeartMedia.com. For Dr. Tom Walsh, University of Washington professor and the director of the UW Men's Health Center, I'm Neil Scott, wishing you good health and good sense to men's health. Thanks for joining us on Men's Health Monthly.
0: You've been listening to Men's Health Monthly with Dr. Tom Walsh, associate professor of urology at the University of Washington and director of the UW Men's Health Center and your host, Neil Scott.